Hey, this is Micah Bosworth. I'm the pastor here at Ridgepoint, and this is our sermon podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. Hope this is an encouragement to you. Hope it helps to build your faith. And I hope it helps you to see that God is working in your life. Enjoy the message. Which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he, Barnabas, was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, And much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. That's an amazing statement. We're going to look at it in just a moment. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so for a few moments this morning, I just want to look at this idea, and it would, I've entitled it The Gospel-Centered Church. A church that is truly gospel-centered. We're going to see some things about it. And a really kind of a, I guess, subtitle would be this, A Church That God's Hand Is On. A Church That God's Hand Is On. And we saw that in the passage specifically. But before we dive too much into it, let's go ahead and ask God to bless this time. And then we'll get into the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this new day to be in your house, to worship and praise your name, and to be able to hear from your word. Lord, your very words given to us uh, to live by, to learn to love you by. And Lord, we pray that uh, today as we hear them and as we go through this passage, that you would just challenge and encourage our hearts, uh, Lord, to... Uh, do more for you, and uh, Lord, to love you more. And God, we pray that you would uh, be honored and glorified with all that's said. I pray that every single word that comes out of my mouth would truly flow just from your heart today, God, and that it would be exactly what each and every one of us need to hear. Uh, Help us to listen and to apply what we hear, and we pray that you would keep us safe as well today as we go through the service. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you, uh, have you ever heard the phrase, or maybe you've even used this phrase, that uh, you say, uh, you could see God's hand all over that? Uh, it's a saying that we've, we have often, especially uh, in Bible college, there's a lot of Bible tropes or things that people say, and we would even say it jokingly. I remember every once in a while, I, I'd uh, have worked, my senior year was just crazy uh, in the sense of I was trying to pay off pay for an engagement ring, uh, pay for college, uh, go to 24 uh, semester hours of college, 
uh, while working overnight was my full-time job. And so it was basically 7.30 a.m., go to class, be at class till about 1.30 p.m., uh, then study and do homework uh, for a couple of hours, then go to dinner, and then right after dinner, uh, my now wife, Rebecca, my girlfriend at the time, would get off work at Chick-fil-A, awesome, because then she would always bring me free food and cookies. It was great. But it, we would have that, and then right after uh, spending time with her, uh, then I would go off to work about 8.30 at night, and then I would get back uh, to the dorm around 6 or 6.30, sleep for about half an hour before I had to get up and be at school the next, uh, the next half hour at 7.30. So it was just a crazy, crazy time. Uh, so I didn't get very many naps, but when I did, they were amazing. And I remember very often just using this trope and saying, I'm pretty sure the Lord's hand was on that one <laughs> because it's just such a good nap. Uh, and, uh, and some, you know, usually when we use that, we're talking about a person uh, or, uh, or a place or a church. Um, we would say that about many great preachers uh, of, of our past that uh, have just seen amazing things take place in their ministry, that God's hand is all over them. Uh, many times uh, you would see a couple come together and get married and we would say something like that's a match made in heaven. Uh, maybe it, it's just very obvious that God put these two people together. And so we use this, really what we're saying each time that we say this is uh, it is very apparent that God is working in that situation, right? Or in that marriage or in that person uh, or in that church. It's saying that, sim uh, simply it's saying that uh, God is moving so obviously in the life of someone that we, that we can't help but notice it. Um, if we go out of our way to say, wow, God's hand was on that situation, then God's moving was so obvious that we have actually noticed it. And when we come to our passage today, I see a church that had God's hand on it, uh, very obviously. And we see that uh, because he was working in some wonderful ways. And we see it in a few phrases in our passage. Uh, if you were to look in verse uh, uh, 21, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them. Uh, later down when Barnabas gets there in verse 23, it says that he had seen in this church the grace of God. Uh, how do you see like grace? Well, the same way you see love or or uh, faith. You see it uh, by the works that come about uh, of it. And so he was very obviously seeing God's grace working in these people's lives. And then uh, an amazing statement that it says these people were called Christians in, in Antioch. Um, just statements that I see through here that makes it very obvious God's hand, God's working was all over this church. Uh, it was a church that was moving forward for the gospel. It was all over this church in Antioch. God's hand was. Why? Well, I believe it was because this was a church that was completely gospel-centered. Completely gospel-centered. We see in the beginning of the passage today a recap, a little bit, of what brought these people up into the region. I, I love, as, I, as I've been reading and studying the book of Acts, I'm just falling in love with the book of Acts as we go through it. And, and not that I've never read it before, uh, but it's just, now that I'm going into some of the details of things and seeing even how Luke wrote 
the book of Acts. And so, so masterfully uh, introduces a character here in one chapter and then uh, mentions him again three chapters later just so you don't forget him and then brings him back up because he's a prominent character four chapters later and then he moves forward with the gospel. Uh, I'm specifically talking about, uh, in that case, Barnabas and the apostle Paul, who we know as Saul. He's just introduced them like, here, you need to know about this guy because he's going to be important in a few chapters. And just the way that he wrote it, it is so amazing of how he did this. And, and here's one of those uh, just masterful writings, again, of Luke being able to get people back on the same page of everything we've already seen taking place. He's like, oh yeah, don't forget, all of this took place because there was persecution. And so he kind of recaps, Stephen got uh, killed, got martyred for the faith, and it, it spread people all around. And some of the people that were spread went as far up as a place called Antioch. Now, Antioch would have been about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a good distance up north, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about what Antioch was. But at, at some point, we see in, in our passage some men who are not named, uh, but it just says men start to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch. Now, we don't know, as I said a moment ago, if they heard what happened in Caesarea with Peter and it's like, oh, wow, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Well, there's so many Gentiles here. Let's just tell them. Or whether it was that God was maybe working on the hearts of these people because their upbringing, it specifically says these men were from Cyprus and Cyrene. That, those would have been uh, Greek upbringings. They would have been born Jews, but uh, brought up in a very Greek culture. They would have spoken Greek. And maybe because of their upbringing, uh, they just just had a heart to see the Gentile nations be changed by the gospel. But whatever the reasoning was, these men start to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, they, they went past the cultural barriers. They went past uh, what, what uh, would have been common for uh, the other people that were around them were doing uh, in order to do this because it even tells us, it says, uh, for the longest time, all of these people, they preach the gospel to none but the Jews only. So this, this was kind of breaking the mold, like, yeah, you guys go do that, and we see some people that need the gospel in, in these Gentiles, and so we're going to go and uh, preach to them and tell them about the gospel. Uh, they, they just told people uh, about the Lord. Their focus, it was all on the good news of Jesus Christ. And because of it, we see God's hand all over the ministry here, uh, and, and I think it's because the kind of church that God's hand is on would be the, the, a church that is completely centered around the gospel. And so I want us to see from the passage today what a gospel-centered church looks like. And what we're going to see is really twofold. One, it's kind of a formula for how to be a gospel-centered church. Uh, however, each of these steps that we uh, are going to see and, and that we should be taking are also evidences of God's hand on a gospel-centered church. And so we're going to be challenged to strive to see these things in our everyday lives and also in our church as we move forward for the sake of our Savior and his gospel. And the first thing we see here about this church uh, is that they are consistently seeing people get saved. People are getting saved here. Uh, people are consistently turning to the Lord. Verse 21, it says, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. 
uh, I, I love, uh, as I do word studies and looking, the word great there just means like innumerable. That so many people were getting saved uh, that, that they didn't, it was like they couldn't keep track of how many people were getting saved. Uh, the, the word number there, it just is the Greek word arithmos, which we get our word arithmetic from. But he's literally, Luke writing here, just saying, uh, so many people were getting saved, we don't really even know the number. There's just a lot of people, okay, coming and turning to the Lord. In verse 24, it says, much people was added unto the Lord. Many people were just coming to know Christ uh, in this city, in this because of this church. And it's a pretty amazing thing, and the reason it's so amazing is because of where this is taking place. This is taking place in a city called Antioch. Now, Antioch was not the most godly place, <laughs> or the most moral place to live. Uh, it was, at this time, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind only Rome and Alexandria. Most ed- estimates of scholars are that Antioch would have had around 500,000 people in the city, uh, at, at, uh, around its average from its m- smallest amount to its greatest amount, about 500,000 people in the city. Uh, It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and because of its location, it was kind of connected to both Asia and Europe. It was almost like the land bridge for Asia and Europe. And it was a place where commerce and trade would take place between uh, many different nations. Uh, And because of this, it was a place where people from all over the world ended up. But it was a very pagan place. Uh, in, in fact, prostitution and fornication uh, was rampant here. So much so, it had become, literally, prostitu- prostitution, fornication had become part of the pagan worship practices of people in Antioch. It was just what they did in their worship was to do those types of things. Some early historians blame Antioch for the corrupting of Rome. Can you imagine <laughs> like how bad Rome was? Just killing people left and right and all that took place there. Uh, and yet, even Rome could say, yeah, we're bad, but we're not Antioch bad. Okay, like this was a wicked, wicked place. And yet, this is the place where we're going to see a new base camp for gospel expansion to be set. And grow. Even in the midst of a wicked and perverse uh, area, when God's hand is on something, when the gospel is central, people can still come to know the Lord. Despite what's going on all around, when the gospel is central and when God's hand is on something, uh, it is a powerful thing. The, the gospel has so much power to save every single person. Paul wrote it in the book of Romans, uh, in verse, uh, verse 16 of chapter number one, that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, that the gospel has power behind it to change lives and to bring people to the saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, these people were seeing so many, many people come to know Christ. And I wonder if, if, a place like Antioch can see that type of, uh, of moving forward and seeing people saved. I wonder, you know, what could happen here in Wenatchee even if those of us who follow Christ, if our lives were completely shaped by the gospel 
like these people's were. Uh, and if Ridgepoint Baptist Church continues to be a place where the gospel is centered, there's no telling what God could do here in Wenatchee if we keep the gospel uh, focused. Uh, when the gospel is interwoven into the DNA of a church, a natural byproduct is to see God work in what, by the way of people getting saved. Uh, when the gospel is central, when God's hand is on something, uh, first of all, something that people are going to be focusing to see uh, is, is people getting saved, and something that you're naturally going to see is people getting saved, people coming to know uh, Christ as their Savior. But not only that, when, when the gospel is central, it is evident in the fact uh, not only that people are getting saved, but it's evident in the fact that God is working by way of people growing. We see here, not just that people are coming to know Christ, but they are growing in their relationship with Christ. And I love uh, how this takes place in this church. We see here in Antioch, the people, uh, they're, they're not just coming to know the Lord, they're actively growing in their walks with the Lord. And we see this with the sending first of Barnabas to them. A church at Jerusalem hears about the fact that there are uh, both Jews and Gentiles coming to Christ, intermingling, serving together, eating together, having a, a gospel community, worshiping together, and, and, and doing all of these things together. Okay, remember last week they said, okay, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, that's okay. But it didn't mean that they just all of a sudden were over seeing Gentiles be saved or Gentiles and Jews coming together because here uh, it's like they have to inspect it. Okay, we hear something amazing is happening up there, but it goes completely still against what we're comfortable with. So Barnabas, go check it out. <laughs> and they send Barnabas to go check out what's taking place up in Antioch. Now, to me, this is not just uh, funny that they still have to send people to inspect. It, it, there was almost like an authentication process uh, when it came to uh, Jerusalem, anything that happened with the gospel, Jerusalem needed to authenticate it. Uh, but I don't just find it funny. I, I find this actually amazing. Uh, I find this as a wonderful example of God's providence. Uh, he knew these people needed someone like Barnabas. He knew that these new believers needed someone like Barnabas. And so he sends them, uh, sends Barnabas to come to see this. And what Barnabas finds is a beautiful thing. In verse 23, it says, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he saw in these people uh, the, the grace of the Lord displayed in their actions, in their behavior, in their works. He saw God's grace all over it. He comes and he sees that in this church, there seems to be, as Paul wrote it, no Jew or Greek, no male or female, no slave or free, but all of these people who are one in Jesus Christ. He comes and sees the grace of God unifying all types of people in one church. And then we see Barnabas, he, he, his reaction is, wow, I am happy. But then we see Barnabas do what really we've seen already Barnabas does best. He's known for being an encourager. Uh, remember, Barnabas wasn't his real name. His real name was Joseph or Joseph, and they called him Barnabas just because he was an encourager. They said, look, encourager, come over here. <laughs> uh, and so Barnabas just doing what he does best, encouraging people. 
In verse 23, it says he exhorts the believers there. He encourages them. Well, what does he encourage them to do? It says he exhorts them that with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. He encourages them in this. Just keep falling in love with Jesus. Just keep growing in Christ. He didn't come at them with a huge list of do's and don'ts. Okay, he didn't come at them and say, okay, these are all the things you need to follow now. This is, this is uh, all the things we can do. These are all the things you can't do. These are all the things that you should stay away from. Uh, that you shouldn't ever go back to eat in this place or whatever. He didn't go through some long list of do's and don'ts. He just said, hey, continue growing in your relationship with Christ. And really, that's what new believers need. Uh, anytime someone comes to Christ, a new believer uh, uh, does not need us all of a sudden to just go to every passage in the Bible and say, now you need to change this and this and this and this and this and this. No, they just need to say, okay, now get in the word, pray, fall in love with Jesus. And, and all the things that the Bible commands us to do, if someone is just falling in love with their, with their Savior and in his word and listening to it, being preached and taught and, and growing in it, naturally the changes are going to come right? And, and so these new believers, they, they needed this Barnabas to just come and encourage them to grow in their love for the Lord. And really, that's what gospel-centered ministry looks like. Not, not one that harps on all the rules one should follow, but a continuous pointing to Christ and his love for us. And then out of a motivation of love, then we learn to obey what the Bible commands us to do. And I love this. I, I've got to show you this. Uh, as I was studying it, the word purpose in verse 24, it's an interesting word. If you look at it, it's the same word that is translated in the Bible several times as showbread, as the showbread of the temple. Uh, the showbread of the temple, it, uh, they, these people may not have known all of Jewish practices as uh, I don't, so I had to go and study it once I saw. That means showbread? Okay, well, what does this all mean? Well, the showbread of the temple was uh, 12 specially prepared loaves that uh, were arranged in two rows on a table in the holy place just before the presence of God. And each Sabbath, fresh loaves would replace the old and then the priests would eat the old ones. That was the Jewish practice of what they did with the showbread. And so... Just noticing that and noticing the word specifically that Barnabas uses to teach them how to, uh, to be uh, growing in their relationship with God, I see Barnabas here encouraging him this way. Just like that showbread, you are specially prepared for Christ. You are separated from the world. You are perpetually 24-7, like the showbread, in the presence of God. So live in that recognition and, and draw closer and closer to him. That word cleave that he uses uh, is, is a great word too. Uh, earlier in scripture in the Old Testament, it uses the word, uh, this, the same root word that uh, when it's talking about one of David, King David's mighty men. And uh, that he was in the middle of battle and, and uh, just clanging the sword and going all through battle. And because of it, it says that his hand clave to the sword. Uh, they, they couldn't pry his hand off of the sword uh, be because of the intensity of him holding on to it in battle. In the same way, uh, we should cleave to the Lord. Uh, there, there should be such an intensity of love for our God that nothing we do is separated from it. 
Like, we can't pry away our Christian identity with anything else that takes place in our life. Uh, I, I think too often in just modern day Christianity, uh, Christians live one way at church or at home and another way in front of certain friends or in the workplace. But we should live in such a way that our relationship with Christ is interwoven into everything that we do. It, it should naturally come out in conversations in, in the workplace. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, I went to church. Like, it, it's just what we do, things that we do as a Christian because of our Christian identity uh, should just naturally come out in conversation, should just naturally come out in the way we interact with people. That is uh, how uh, our, we should cleave to the Lord, that, that it, it can't be separated in any part of our lifestyle because we just hold wholeheartedly to our God. I think that that's what the Apostle Paul was getting at when in his letters he wrote to us to walk in the Spirit. Uh, that at all times we're just in a recognition of being in God's presence because of the Spirit living within us so that everything we do, that we just walk through life and the Spirit is there and evident in our life. And then Barnabas, I love this, as he tells them, he says, look, you are perpetually in God's presence. Live with that recognition and just cleave to him and, and grow in him and fall in love with him. Uh, he, he then gets to a point, now I don't know, it doesn't tell us if maybe it was growing so fast that he didn't have enough time to teach all of these people or maybe uh, it was just he, uh, he wasn't as much of an orator as uh, the person he goes and gets is. Uh, but whatever the case is uh, and whatever the reasoning, Barnabas at some point in this process goes, I gotta go get someone. Wait here, guys. I'll be right back. He travels over to Tarsus and brings a man named Saul. Now, we know this man named Saul. He was, of course, Saul the persecutor, the one who was one of the main reasons the widespread scattering of the people of God happened was because of his persecution. And we saw him get saved in chapter number nine when he encountered the Lord. And we saw him uh, start to preach the gospel and debate with uh, some of the people that he used to be like in the temples. And, and because of it, there was so much controversy taking place that the disciples, the apostles said, Paul, you got, Saul, he wasn't Paul yet. Uh, Saul, you gotta get out of here. And they sent him away to Tarsus. Now it's been anywhere from seven to 10 years since that took place. So for a, a while now, for a few years, Saul is just serving silently in Tarsus. We, these are kind of the silent years of Saul's life. We don't, we don't know much about these years in the life of the Apostle Paul. But I will say this, that doesn't mean, just because we don't know much of what, what happened in these years, does not mean that they were insignificant years of the, uh, uh, of the Apostle Paul. Saul, at this point, was not yet a well-known name or minister in the church. Uh, it, it seems at least in our cursory reading of the book of Acts, it seems that he was forgotten for a while. But all the while, Saul was just serving in Tarsus, telling people about the gospel, most likely uh, in wherever the temple was there, he was worshiping the Lord and, and, and growing with a Christian, uh, a Christian community there in uh, Tarsus. But uh, whatever he was doing, uh, and, and although it seems though that he might have been forgotten by uh, a lot of the Christians that were in the area of Judea and Samaria. Uh, I love this because although he seems forgotten, God did not forget about him. And, and Barnabas didn't forget about him. 
because Barnabas came to get him. And can I say this? In looking at that, don't be in a hurry to promote yourself. Saul, he wasn't yet like promoted to what I would say is the greatest Christian who's ever lived. Uh, that we would know him by. He hasn't yet written the 12, possibly, if you count Hebrews, uh, 13 books of the Bible yet. He hasn't done any of that yet. He isn't uh, the one who started multiple churches. He hasn't been sent out uh, by Antioch, this very church, spoiler alert, in chapter 13, okay? We're going to see he's sent out to start churches. He hasn't done any of that yet. Uh, but he, he wasn't in a hurry to do all of that yet. He was sent to Tarsus by God, by the apostles, and so he just served in Tarsus. So for us too, don't be in a hurry to promote yourself and, and be like, I, I've got to be seen or I've got to, wh- whatever the case might be, just serve God wherever he has you now. Whatever God has gifted you with and wherever God has you now, just serve him now and allow him in due time to put you in the place he wants you to be. Now, as I, as I look at this and see that uh, Barnabas came to find Saul, I kind of wish I could see, and I, I, I wish we had a little bit more detail of what this reunion would have been like. Uh, the idea of that in our passage, the wording that's used, the idea is that Barnabas, first of all, couldn't just find Saul. Like he didn't, he wa- it wasn't like Cornelius being told, go to this person's house, this person is going to be there by the seaside in a workshop of a tanner. It wasn't like all the details. He somehow had to search and seek for Saul and Tarsus, which to me probably just shows that Saul really was just always serving and just going all, and he had to ask around and he found him. But I, I wish I could see just the reunion of Saul seeing a familiar face from Jerusalem, specifically the one guy who accepted him when no one else in Jerusalem would. Uh, He sees Barnabas. I wish we could see that reunion, how wonderful it would have been. And one day when I get to heaven, I'm going to be like, this is one of those scenes I want to see on a movie screen. How did this take place, right? Uh, I, I just love that Barnabas comes, he finds Saul, and then Barnabas brings him back to Antioch. And Saul now, alongside Barnabas, begins to teach these believers in Antioch. And they see people growing in the Lord. For an entire year, they stay here in Antioch and just teach the people. And they see people grow. They see people grow so much that a very interesting thing takes place. That last statement in verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So much growth was taking place in the life of these believers in a very wicked place that they were called Christians. The reason this is interesting is because it doesn't say, and they called themselves Christians first at Antioch. That's not what it says. They didn't self-identify as Christians. Other people gave them that name. Other people came. So much so was the change in their lifestyle that it caused people who were on the sidelines of their life to call them this. Their, their life so resembles the person they claim to follow that we are going to call them after his name. Uh, the, those are the Christ ones. That's what, that's what they called them. 
the Christ ones. And, and I, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but Christian doesn't mean little Christ. I looked it up. I w- that blew my mind this week, okay? Uh, it, it, that was a popular phrase that, uh, that C.S. Lewis came up with, that we should be little Christ. And some people just basically adopted it as the definition of Christians. Uh, but the literal definition of Christian just means Christ follower or Christ one, okay? So uh, up to this point, we know they were called saints, believers, those of the way, uh, many uh, the sect of the Nazarenes was another one that they were called. Uh, so they were called all of these things, but they are now specifically identified with a name that resembles the name of their Savior. Uh, they, their name, not just now does their life resemble the Savior, now what people are calling them resembles the very name of Jesus Christ. Such an example of growth taking place in the life of those in this church. And truly, that's the ultimate sign of growth in our Christian lives today as well, that, that we are more like Jesus today than we were previously. Uh, when, when we look at our lives, we sh- and, and to really, this is the, the gauge of whether we're growing in the Lord, is am I more like Jesus today than I was even last week or last month or a year ago or three years ago? Am I, am I consistently becoming more like my Savior? We should see the characteristics of Jesus be exhibited better now than we ever have before in our Christian walks. And, and, and more growth uh, should continuously take place. And then we see more growth even take place with these people when prophets are sent to Jerusalem. So we see Barnabas sent. We see Saul is brought then we see prophets are sent to them. And, and what I see happening here is a perfect example of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 13, when it says, And he gave, talking about God, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up or the growing of the body of Christ. I see a perfect example of that here, that, that God brings Barnabas. He's an encourager. Uh, he's a teacher. He brings uh, Saul, uh, another teacher, and, and really uh, more so like a, a, almost a pastor-like type shepherd and starting churches. And, and, and really, he's the, the ultimate evangelist that we're uh, going to see as we continue the book of Acts. And then, uh, and then brings prophets up to them to teach and preach and proclaim the word of God to them. Uh, that God is just bringing these people into the church for what purpose? Well, Paul said, for the building up or the growing of those that are in the body of Christ. Uh, and, and such a beautiful picture of that taking place here. These believers, they consistently grow in their walks with God. Another natural byproduct of a gospel culture within the church is seeing consistent spiritual growth in the lives of believers. And then lastly, I see that another byproduct, another way that we see God working in a gospel-focused or gospel-centered ministry is not only that people are getting saved and that people are growing, but people are giving. People are giving. Um, now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but it is worth noting that when the gospel is central in a ministry and when the gospel is center in the life of a believer, that their love for others is seen by giving. These Christians, they, their love for God made them sensitive to the needs of others 
and it motivated them to give toward those needs. They were told of a famine that was coming to the land and that the church down in Judea, that Jerusalem church, needed help. And they heard the need and through the Spirit was sensitive to the need. And not only did they determine, it says they determined in their hearts, each one of them as, as they had in their own ability to give, they determined in your, their hearts, but then verse 30 says, which they also did. They, they said in their hearts, man, we should give to that need. And they said, you know what, we're going to do it. And they gave to the need. They were willing to share their resources. They were willing to share their leaders. They sent the people, they could have sent anyone to Jerusalem with this money. They could, have, they could have been like, hey, here's all the money for Jerusalem. Hey, brother so-and-so, go. The two people they choose to send are what seems to be some of their greatest leaders in the church right now is Barnabas and Saul. They're willing not only to share their resources, they're willing to share their leaders with the church. Their love for God's work is evident by the fact that they gave. A well-known quote by Amy Carmichael is this, that you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. When there is love in someone's heart and for someone, it, you cannot truly love without giving of your time, of your resources. And one of the greatest evidences of God's hand at work in a church and of a gospel culture is that people are giving. They give of their time, they give of their talents, and yes, we even give of our money. A church where God is working and the gospel is central. And as a result, we see this church, Antioch, was a place that in a very short time turned from mission field to mission state station. <laughs> like, this was a place, man, the gospel needs to go there. And very quickly, because of the gospel culture that took place there and the growing that took place, these people not only, uh, or it turned very quickly from a place where the gospel, it needs to go there, to being sending the gospel to everywhere else. And, and we're going to see that even more, as I said, in Acts 13, because this is the sending church of Paul and Barnabas. So, how central is the gospel to our personal lives and to our church? Will we go past cultural barriers or, or social norms to share the gospel with someone, uh, just as these people did to get to the Gentiles? Will, will we actively try to see people saved? Are, are we growing in our love for the Lord, and are we giving? I pray we determine to be a people, to be a church where God is working. I think we would all say, we want to be a part of a place where God is working, uh, where, where the grace of God can be seen, we want to be a, a part of that, where, where people are encouraging one another, where people are getting saved, where, where people are growing, where people are giving, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is central. And for some of you, uh, maybe that were there on our launch Sunday, uh, or maybe in our starting point class, this may sound familiar to you, some of the points we've gone over today, because the mission statement here at Ridgepoint is that we would elevate Jesus, equip believers, and evangelize the lost. Because true gospel culture, gospel ministry is one where Christ is glorified by seeing people saved and by seeing people grow. And I pray that not just in our church, but even in our everyday personal lives, we would determine and purpose in our hearts to strive to be just that, 
a believer that has God's hand on them and is seeing people saved and seeing growth take place in in our lives and, and seeing giving take place from our hearts because of the working of God and the centrality of the gospel in our lives. Thank you so much for joining us. A special thanks to those that give generously to our ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. For more information about our ministry, check out our website at wenatchechurch.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe, you can share it with your friends, hit the share button or take a screenshot and share it on your social media, and tag us at Wenatchee Church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.